Friends, this is what the Lord has opened our eyes to see and to sing about. That God's grace is given to us in Jesus Christ. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? Praise God for His grace to us in Christ, who not only enables us by His Spirit to see Him rightly, but to see ourselves rightly, to understand people rightly, to see one another as God sees us, to marvel at the wisdom of God's purposes for His church, so that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. Those who have been reconciled to God through Christ those who have received grace bear the fruit of grace in their lives, particularly in their relationships. And this is what Paul wants to teach the Corinthians, that if you are a new creation in Christ, then you should see with new eyes and pursue righteousness to do what is right by reconciling to God and restoring relationships with one another in the body. So turn with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 1 to 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Listen carefully now to God's holy word. Working together with Him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Let's pray. Father, we pray in faith that you would now work in our hearts with surpassing power so that our lives would commend the gospel. Show us the glory of our Savior that we might give ourselves to the ministry of reconciliation and comfort one another for your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the first things to go out the window when there's a conflict with another believer, well, let's say your spouse, is your affection towards them. Every married person knows what I'm talking about. That moment when you have a sharp disagreement and unkind words are spoken, tempers are high, selfishness and sin have risen to the surface, and all of a sudden you are emotionally cold towards each other. Those tender feelings of attachment and oneness that you had five minutes ago no longer seems to be there. And that's because like every other behavior, our feelings are reflective of what's going on in our hearts. 
most of the time, this is what makes the ministry of reconciliation difficult. That discomfort of engaging someone while having those feelings towards them. And the truth is, it is uncomfortable. But we know from 2 Corinthians 5 that those who have received God's reconciling grace in the gospel must be reconcilers themselves. God calls us to do this. Those who have received the righteousness of Christ by faith must pursue righteousness by repairing and restoring ruptured relationships. We must be peacemakers if we call ourselves sons and daughters of God. We must learn to see each other as those who have the Spirit, as those who have received God's grace and will be receptive to God's Word. This is the grounds on which we proceed, our new identity in Christ. And so we go ahead and identify sin biblically. We remember the gospel. We confess sin. We repent. We ask the Lord for forgiveness and His cleansing power. We ask for forgiveness from the one whom we have wronged. And we forgive those who have sinned against us. And we reconcile. In other words, we act upon the grace we have received. And as we pursue that, as we walk in the Spirit, the Lord is pleased to produce in us godly, Christ-like affections. Friends, this is the comfort that God gives us through the afflictions of relational brokenness when we lean on His everlasting and sustaining arms. So, is it uncomfortable? Reconciling with someone? Of course it is. But beloved, trust in His grace and prayerfully act and the Lord will minister comfort to your hearts. You know, sin can create quite a mess. But the grace of God is more powerful. And Paul certainly believed that. When he ministered God's grace, his tough grace, through the words of that severe letter, Many of the Corinthians who had turned against him repented. But Paul was not satisfied with that. His heart yearned for those who had not reconciled to him. These members, if you remember, were being led astray by false apostles who were, uh, who, who were deceiving them into accepting a different gospel than the one that Paul had preached to them. Now, we don't know exactly what these false teachers taught, but we do know from the letter, that it had something to do with the Old Covenant. These men were fascinated with the glory of the Law Covenant and were enamored with outward appearances. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that not only were they proclaiming a different gospel, they were proclaiming a different Jesus. Now, that was his assessment of the whole thing. And so these members were in grave spiritual danger of abandoning the true gospel. And so from chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to chapter 7, verse 4, not only does Paul make a case for the glory of New Covenant ministry and how suffering is an indispensable part of that, something that his opponents could not understand, but he also reminds them of the true gospel and he calls them to be reconciled to God in chapter 5, verse 20. Look at 5 verse 20, we implore, he says, we beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now you must remember that Paul has already taught us that God in Christ reconciled his people to himself and entrusted to his apostles the message of reconciliation. Paul says in chapter 5 verse 20 that God makes his appeal through his apostles. It is the apostolic word of the cross that saves sinners. It is this message that the Corinthians had strayed away from. So Paul's words to them as an apostle were the foundation of their faith, and they had shifted away from that foundation. Now, this is why Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. You cannot separate the apostolic message from the apostles. You see, in that sense, the apostles are unique in their role and authority. They are God's spokesmen, just as the prophets of the Old Testament. 
you know, we should appreciate the uniqueness of God's apostles and the apostolic age. Now, today, how do we think about that? You and I, who are not apostles, could say something like this. You cannot be reconciled to God without submitting to the apostolic word. And so to be reconciled to God in the context of this letter means to be reconciled to Paul. Since it was through his gospel, through his preaching, that they came to faith. To be reconciled to Paul and his gospel would be an appropriate expression of their reconciliation to God. And yet, remember this. He's not trying to get these people to like him. He's not trying to to gain a following. He's not trying to get these people to like him, hit subscribe and press the bell icon. He's going to tell them to separate from these troublemakers and then call them to repentance, as we'll see later in the the latter half of chapter 6 and in chapter 7. And so in our passage this morning, Paul not only continues to remind them to see and think differently about him and his ministry, but he also cautions them about how they were behaving and he urges them to reconcile to him. There was a certain coldness a lack of affection that was lost. And Paul wants to see it restored. See, Paul's point here is a simple one. If these Corinthians had been reconciled to God by His grace, then they must act upon that grace. So here's the first lesson we can learn from this text. Number one, God's grace must be acted upon. God's grace must be acted upon. Look at verse 1. Working together with Him, working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You know, the word then in this verse tells you that the basis of Paul's appeal is found in the previous verse, chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, He, that's God, made Him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This was the gospel that Paul had preached to them. This is the message of reconciling grace on the basis of which Paul makes his appeal. But friends, this appeal is no mere human appeal. It is God Himself who speaks through Paul, working Together with him, he says, we appeal to you. Paul, as an apostle, is an ambassador for Christ. This is another way of stating what he has already said in chapter 5, verse 20. God making his appeal through us. Now, what's the substance of this appeal? It's this. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. The grace of God is another way of referring to the gospel in chapter 5, verse 21 in this context. Paul says, this is the gospel I preached to you, and you believed it. You came to faith through my preaching. You see, Paul regarded these people as believers, and he's cautioning them, warning them as believers. Which is why later, look down in chapter 6, verse 14, he tells the very same people, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But when Paul hears about them, their hesitancy to fully reconcile to him, their continued suspicion of him and his ministry, and their tolerance above all of these false apostles, all of this was very concerning to Paul. And so he says to them, working together with the God of the gospel, I say to you, these are God's words to you. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. If you are a new creation in Christ, then you need to understand that the message of reconciliation always produces a heart that is eager to reconcile, a heart that wants to do right, a heart that loves the gospel and wants to live a life that is in keeping in keeping in step with the grace of God. And so when he says, do not receive the grace of God in vain, he knows that they have received it. They had heard it from him and believed, but they were behaving in such a way 
as though they had received it in vain. To no effect. To no profit. It's not enough to say you once received it. You once believed it. You must keep on believing it and bear fruit. And the most important fruit is the endurance to keep on believing. You know, Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 2, doesn't he? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Working together with him then, we appeal to you, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't live in such a way that shows that the gospel of Jesus Christ has had no effect on you. Don't live like that. Like it holds little value in your hearts. Like it makes no difference. And friends, that word, that appeal ought to ring loud in our ears as well this morning. Are you living in a way that it looks like you've received the grace of God in vain? Do you affirm the gospel of Jesus that God saves unworthy sinners through the substitutionary death of His Son so that we might not live for ourselves but for Him who died and rose to purchase our forgiveness and to give us new life? Do you affirm that gospel? Do you affirm that but in practice you live your life according to a different gospel? Do you affirm that it is the Lord who leads His beloved saints into trials of various kinds, but when trials come, you are surprised and you're bitter and you grumble and you wonder, what have I, a good person, standing on the strength of my own righteousness, what have I done to deserve this? Do you rejoice in the comfort of God's reconciling grace to you in Christ that your sins are forgiven? But when conflict with other believers arise, you harden your heart and you refuse to forgive them. You refuse to minister comfort to others. Do you glory in your identity as evangelicals? Oh yes, we're evangelicals. We believe the Bible. It is the only sufficient rule for our faith and practice. But when a brother or sister points out how your behavior is out of step with what the Bible says... Do you avoid them? Because it makes you uncomfortable. Brothers and sisters, let me help you this morning to see with new eyes. This warning, this caution that Paul puts forward as coming from the Lord Himself to examine whether our lives commend the gospel of grace or not, this word, this warning in itself is meant to be a word of comfort. A word of mercy from our Heavenly Father. Do you see that word that is translated as appeal? We appeal to you. That word is a derivative of the word that is translated as comfort or encourage. So in essence, he's saying we, we want to encourage you to do this. This is a, a word of comfort to you. We appeal to you on the basis of God's grace in the gospel. The gospel that he's stated in, in chapter 5, verse 21. It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of grace that you must act upon. Don't receive it in vain. Why? Well, here's the reason. Here's the reason why they must act. Because it's urgent. It's urgent. Look at verse 2. For, or because, he says, that's God. He refers to God for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. This is a quotation from Isaiah 49, verse 8. And in that passage, God speaks to his servant, the servant of the Lord who calls on him for help, and God answers him. At the acceptable time, he brings about his deliverance. The servant of the Lord is the one whom God appointed to bring about the restoration of Israel and to bring light to the Gentiles by atoning for their sins. And when we 
Fast forward to Isaiah 53, we, we see who this servant is and how this servant accomplishes this. It's through his suffering and death. Now we know that Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus and his saving work while we were still sinners, disobedient and, and worthy of God's righteous judgment, Christ died for us. He died as a substitute for sinners, bearing God's judgment for all those who would repent and believe on Him. And then He rose from the dead to purchase our forgiveness and new life, so that we would be reconciled to God, so that we would be restored to Him. And do you remember what Isaiah calls this word of restoration? Isaiah 40 verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And what Paul does here is that he reminds us about how the Lord at the right time, His gracious, favorable time, brought about His salvation through His servant. And Paul takes that and he applies it to the Corinthians. And he says this, Behold, now, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is that time when the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ has begun. The new covenant is in effect. In other words, the grace of God in the gospel is God's eschatological grace, His end times grace. And therefore, the Corinthians must act now. You must act now, says Paul, because you've received God's grace. His word of grace, His word of comfort has come to them through Paul. And therefore, there's no better time than now to see their folly to repent and be reconciled to Him. God's help is available to you now, says Paul, through this appeal. So act now. Beloved, we should never be slow to repent, slow to reconcile, slow to do the right thing. When you hear the word through preaching, or through the counsel of another believer, be eager to act. This is all over the scriptures. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Act soon. Ephesians 5.26 Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Hebrews 3.13 You know, Paul has already said that we must make it our aim to please the Lord because we will all one day stand before Christ's judgment seat and give an account for what we have done in the body. And that includes our relationships. Beloved, the Lord is not pleased if the grace we confess with our lips does not affect our relationships with one another. If your relationship with a brother or sister is strained and it does not reflect the glory of the reconciling gospel, that's a matter of urgency. You know, we hear the same urgency to reconcile on the lips of Jesus. Listen to Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Friends, this is a worship issue. Let me remind you of another exhortation that all of you are used to hearing every month. Friends, this is a meal for sinners who are saved by grace, who are trusting in Christ's righteousness and are repenting. So if you are holding on to any sin for which you refuse to repent, let this bread and cup pass you by. Be reconciled first with God through Christ. Be reconciled with one another and then look forward to the Lord's Supper when it is observed next. Why is it important to do this? Because Scripture says in 1 John 1, 6-7 that if we say we have fellowship with the Lord while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Beloved, the Lord's Supper is about fellowship on the basis of God's reconciling grace. How can you and the other person that you have a conflict with sit at the same table pretending to have fellowship when you haven't addressed the elephant in the room? You're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner without discerning the body of Christ. Isn't that an obstacle? Isn't that a, a hindrance to genuine love and genuine fellowship? Beloved, God by His grace wants our lives to commend the gospel. And for that we must act on the grace we have received. We must act on it in faith so that it's not only our words that are in keeping with the gospel, but our lives also display the transforming power of the gospel of grace. And that brings us to the second lesson we can learn from this text. God's grace must be seen. It must be seen. It's visible. We must be able to see God's grace at work in our lives if we are truly in Him. And this is what Paul wanted these Corinthians to see in his own life and ministry. Even as he calls them to reconcile to Him. He wanted them to see that the gospel that he was calling them back to was embodied in his own life. Look at verse 3. We put no obstacle, no hindrance. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. We gave you no cause for stumbling. See, Paul was very careful about how he lived both as a Christian and an apostle. He says this in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12, we behaved in the world with simplicity or holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, which is what the false apostles were living by, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Paul lived in such a way for two reasons. He's already told us one, chapter 5 verse 14, the love of Christ constrained him to live like that. But he also lived, not just for himself, but for others, for the Corinthians, because he, he loved them. He did not want the gospel to be discredited because of his life. Look at the text. We put no obstacle. Why? So that no fault, no blame, no reproach may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In other words, here's what it looks like do not receive the grace of God in vain. Here's what it looks like. Again, notice his humility. Unlike these false apostles who were lording it over the Corinthians, Paul commends, he puts his life on display as God's servants, as did the rest of the apostles. And notice how he commends himself. This is how you can see God's grace at work in my life, he says. What do you think he's going to say? By great miracles? Well, you could have said that. God certainly did many extraordinary things by the hands of Paul. But look at the text. Notice how he commends himself in a way that puts no cause for stumbling, no reproach, by great endurance. Endurance in what? Endurance in suffering. In various trials, look at that list. In afflictions. These are the inner distresses and pain he felt because of external circumstances. Hardships, these were the troubles he faced in the course of his ministry and life in general. The opposition from the Jews, the dangers of travels, the financial difficulties. And then calamities. Here he's not talking about things like earthquakes and floods, but this word is describing those situations that Paul found himself in that made him felt utterly helpless. Like that situation in Asia where he felt so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. And yet by God's grace, he endured them all. But he also endured these. Look at verse 5. Beatings. Paul suffered physical trauma from his persecutors. He mentions these in 2 Corinthians 11. Countless beatings, he said. After a while, he just stopped counting. But I think he remembered the most painful ones. Once stoned, three times beaten with rods, five times lashed by the Jews, imprisonments, 
Paul was in prison for his faith far more than any of the other apostles. Riots, those who opposed him, often stirred up crowds to create life-threatening situations for Paul. But then there were also hardships that Paul willingly subjected himself to because of his love for the saints and for the sake of the gospel. Labors, he says. These were long hours of teaching and preaching, possibly even his tent-making, which he probably did at the end of the day. Sleepless nights. You know, this phrase suggests sleeplessness because of great care and concern for the churches. Hunger. Paul often had to endure the lack of food because of travel or inadequate finances. You know, this doesn't mean that there was never a time when Paul did not have his needs met. No, in the book of Philippians, he speaks of times of plenty and abundance. But Paul doesn't mention those here. No, he wants to see, he wants these Corinthians to see the grace of God in his weaknesses and lack and sufferings. He doesn't just want to give them a list of hardships as though there's something great or some virtue in in merely suffering. No, he wanted them to see God's grace producing endurance in his suffering. He wanted them to see God's power sustaining him in those sufferings. He wanted them to see that the grace of God produced faithful endurance, holy endurance. He wanted them to see that his gospel alone, the gospel that he was calling them back to, that gospel alone had the power to produce godliness. He endured all these things. How? Look at verse 6. By purity. This refers to his sincere and Christ-like conduct. He says in chapter 7, verse 2, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. Knowledge. Paul knew how to apply God's word to his difficult situations. We saw an example of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, didn't we? Despite his trials in Troas, he was able to thank God because he knew that the Lord was leading him to and through these afflictions. Patience. Paul knew how to bear up under his trouble, especially in the face of injustice, entrusting himself to God who was sovereign over every single one of his afflictions. He was certainly patient with the Corinthians, wasn't he? This was the man who wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7, Love bears all things. Paul did not go to them immediately after writing his cheerful letter because he was being patient with them. We saw that in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.23. Kindness, despite their opposition and hostility, Paul's love and kindness towards them is evident both in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. He calls them his beloved children in 1 Corinthians 4.14. He expresses his love for them in 2 Corinthians 12.15. Paul was often kind to his persecutors by preaching to them the gospel of God's saving kindness in Christ. The very fact that he writes this letter is a demonstration of kindness which the Holy Spirit produces in the life of someone who trusts in the reconciling grace of God. All of this is from the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul mentions that next, the Holy Spirit. He is the one who empowers Paul and makes him sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant by enabling him to endure hardships as a jar of clay. Beloved, as we walk through this list, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point that the evidence of God's gospel grace at work in a person is not the absence of pain or sorrow or suffering, but faithful Christ-like endurance through it all. Don't miss that. You know, Paul, in that sense, is just like his Savior who endured the cross, Hebrews 12.2. Who endured hostility from sinners, Hebrews 12.3. Who endured reproach, Hebrews 13, verse 13. Paul endures all things with genuine love, he says. This is love that is not hypocritical or fake. You know, if you have hypocritical or fake love, That's a hindrance. That's an obstacle to reconciliation, isn't it? Verse 7, by truthful speech. Uh, Quite literally, the, the, the word of truth, which is a reference to the gospel itself, the gospel proclamation and gospel application, even while suffering. 
And the power of God refers to referring to God's power, building up the faith of others through Paul's ministry. You see that in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 5. Paul teaches the Corinthians how to think Christianly and not culturally because he wants their faith to not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. These weapons are the truths of God's word that Paul employs to answer and to contend against those who teach false doctrine. The idea that uh, these weapons are in the right hand and the left hand is simply a way of saying he's thoroughly equipped. Sword and shield, both hands are full. He's thoroughly equipped by God's grace to do this as God leads him in triumphal procession. In 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5, Paul says that his weapons of warfare have divine power to destroy arguments and to take every thought captive to Christ. And yet, even though Paul's life commended the grace of God, he wants us to know that people's responses to his life and ministry were often mixed. Look at verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. When Paul was in Lystra, in Acts 14, the crowd was first enamored with him and wanted to worship him. And by the end of that narrative, being influenced by the Jews, the same crowd stoned him and left him for dead. There were those who praised him, and there were times when people twisted his words and spoke evil of him. This is how Jesus was treated, wasn't he? Beloved, I think this is instructive to us in that we should learn and understand that the pursuit of godliness in ministry is not mainly for the purpose of public approval. Yes, Scripture does speak of us having a good report among unbelievers, but we ought to have our lives commend the gospel because, our, because of our love for the Lord, that we may have a clear conscience before Him. Now, remember, these are all examples of great endurance, faithful endurance sustained by the grace of God. But don't forget this. Remember why Paul mentions these. He wanted the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain, to act upon it in faith, but also to show them what gospel grace in the life of a believer looks like, so that they would be reconciled to him, so that there would be no hindrances to reconciliation. And that tells us that through these words, as Paul gives them a description of what profitable grace looks like, he is teaching them to see with new eyes. He is teaching them to see with the eyes of faith, to see what God in Christ is doing in the hearts of His new covenant people by His Spirit. And in doing so, He's helping them behold the glory of the Lord's gracious work. He is helping them to see grace, so to speak. To look at the evidences of grace in the life of a believer through the lens of the cross. Beloved, this ought to teach us something very important as we pursue reconciliation with one another. As we enter into that uncomfortable and often painful task of reconciliation, at every step of the way, as we approach one another, as we speak, as we consider our tone, as we weigh our words, as we evaluate our own hearts in light of Scripture, we ought to remember that the goal is not simply restoration. Certainly not a worldly kind of reconciliation where everything is swept under the carpet, where we let bygones be bygones and our sinful hearts are never addressed. Now, that would be receiving God's grace in vain. No, the goal is godly reconciliation. Reconciliation that is based on the grace of God. We ought to remove hindrances to reconciliation by making sure both persons in the ruptured relationship see the grace of God in the cross of Christ. By examining if anything we did, did it bring disrepute? to the gospel. Only then 
will you be empowered to reconcile and have a loving relationship that commends the gospel of grace. Only then can we be prepared to receive God's comfort in the midst of a sorrowful, broken relationship. And this is why Paul presents these next set of paradoxes in his own life to show us that this is how God works. God works in and through our afflictions, even relational afflictions and pain. And He brings healing to show that the surpassing power belongs to Him and not to us. Not because of anything we did. He enters into our weaknesses to raise us up from our helplessness in order that He gets all the glory. Look at verses 8 to 10. Now, as we look at these... Notice how the first half of the antithesis represents how we are seen as clay jars and how the second half represents God's power at work. We are treated as impostors, as leading people astray. This is what the Jews and the false apostles said of him. And yet, are true. He is a true apostle preaching the truth. God works through him. Verse 9, as unknown, Paul was a nobody. Not like the famous orators of Corinth, oh, he was often disregarded. And yet, well known, known to believers, established with Paul and Christ by the Spirit, and commended by God Himself, as dying, and behold, we live. You know, here Paul picks up that theme which he has already introduced us to in chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, referring to his afflictions, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Our sufferings, our afflictions are a figurative death so that God can manifest his resurrection power in our lives, thereby comforting us. As punished, he says, this is how the world will see our lives, weak and frail and suffering. The world may see it as punishment, as we suffer as Christians, but we know that the Lord is lovingly disciplining us to sanctify us and yet not killed. God often delivered Paul many times from death. As sorrowful, verse 10, grieving over loss, grieving over sin, over discouragements, being sinned against, grieving over our wasted bodies, yet always rejoicing, always rejoicing fixing our eyes on the glories of eternity that await us, seeing with the eyes of faith that what God is accomplishing through all these sorrows, as poor, the apostles had nothing to their name, no earthly treasures stored up. They were often in want. Sometimes Paul gave up the right to receiving money so that people would not stumble. Yet making many rich through his preaching of Christ and all his blessings, he was building them up as having nothing in this world, yet possessing everything in the world to come. Again, why does this matter? Because the false apostles were wrong about Paul. And this is how grace works in a world that cannot see grace. This is what glory looks like in a world that is veiled. This is what God's wisdom looks like to a world that sees it as foolish. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that and be reconciled to him. He doesn't want to impress them. No, he wants them to see with new eyes and be reconciled to him. Grace must be acted upon and not received in vain. Grace ought to be visible in our lives. And then finally, this is where all of this has been leading to. Point number three, grace produces loving affections. Paul reminds them of the grace of God because the grace of God is able to change our hearts and produce godly affections as we reconcile. Notice Paul's passionate and emotional plea. Look at verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We've not held anything back. We've been completely honest and straightforward. Our heart is wide open. You know, whenever Paul addresses the members of a church in this way, you know he's being passionate in his appeal. Think about Galatians, Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or Philippians 4.15, 
And you, Philippians, you yourselves know. You know Paul says to these members, O Corinthians, our hearts are wide open to you. Friends, this is an expression of love and affection, of warmth and acceptance. I haven't shut you out of my heart. It's wide open. I love you, he says. And that says a lot given how they had treated him. Now he expects this word of grace, this word of comfort, this appeal that flows from the gospel to do something to them and in them. But even as he does this, he does not set aside their sin. Friends, having godly, loving, and even strong affections should not make you blind to sin. Should not make you excuse sin, make you ignore the elephant in the room and avoid uncomfortable conversations that expose the heart. Paul doesn't. Look at the text. Look at the next verse, verse 12. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. You know, Titus had just visited them and brought back a report to Paul. So Paul has some idea of how they're behaving. And he says, you are not restricted by us. That word restricted means to be kind of boxed in, closed off, emotionally cold. And he says, we're not the cause of that. We've done you no wrong. Rather, you are restricted in your own affections. In other words, you're the one who's withholding your affection from us. And the reason is in you. It's your own hearts. Beloved, sometimes people will grow distant and avoid you because they've been harboring bitterness or some other unrepentant sin simply because your gracious and loving words have exposed their sin, have exposed their hypocrisy, and they don't like what you're saying. Hence the coldness. And yet Paul is simply not willing to quit. He'll come back to this again at the end of the letter, chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Don't you see that? Shouldn't you be behaving differently? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And the reason Paul feels this way about them is because he loved them and he saw himself as their spiritual father. They had come to faith through his ministry and he doesn't want to lose any of his spiritual children. And so he calls them to reciprocate his affections. Look at verse 13. In return, I speak as to children. That's how he saw them. With fatherly and pastoral affection. This is a reasonable Exchange, he says, in return. Widen your hearts also. Be restored to me. Be affectionate towards me. I've done you no wrong. Rekindle your tenderness for me. Friends, reconciliation is much more than mere agreement. You know, as though you can sit down and figure out who, who, did, who did wrong. And sort it out mentally. Reconciliation is much more than mere agreement. So yes, Paul wanted them to recognize that they had strayed from the apostolic gospel and that they needed to be reconciled. Yes, he wanted them to see that the death and resurrection of Jesus was embodied in his life and ministry through suffering and comfort and how he endured through all of it and how God sustained him. But he wanted more. See, reconciliation should not be merely transactional. It should be tender. It should be tender. Think about what Jesus did for us. Think about that great exchange. We don't merely get a change of, of status and identity. We get God. His Spirit abides in us. The judge and king is now our Father. and We can tenderly call Him Abba, Father. We can have communion with our God and call Him my God. Friends, this is a letter 
that drips with pastoral affection for a people who have turned against their apostle and pastor. And yet Paul reaches out to them and says, come back, return to me, be restored to me, be reconciled to God and the true gospel. You see, Paul is able to do this because he knows a great Savior, the Lord Jesus, who saved Paul while he was still a sinner, while he was thinking that he was doing the right thing. But he was wrong. And yet Christ pursued him. He needed to have his eyes opened, open to see that he was a sinner who needed to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. He needed to believe that Christ died in his place so that he could receive new life and forgiveness. Friend, if you're not a Christian, then our appeal to you is to turn from your sins and turn to Christ. God stands ready to help. He stands ready to forgive and ready to reconcile you to himself through his son. Now, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and put your trust in him and you will find your heart being warmed, filled with God's love, filled with godly affections for him and his people. See, Paul was able to do this to yearn for the restoration of the Corinthians because he knew his heavenly father. He knew what his father was like. He knew his father's heart. A father who had reconciled him to himself through the blood of his son. A father of mercies and comfort. How does Paul know so much about the human heart? Where did he get his counseling degree from? How is he able to see with new eyes and know the power of God that is able to sanctify our souls and, and restore relationships for His glory? And the answer to that is Paul lives at the foot of the cross. And that's where we need to live. David Paulison once said, The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature, get this, knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. Friends, we have a sweet and divine fellowship with our Heavenly Father because we have received reconciling, reconciling grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is, the same, it is that same gospel that sustains and strengthens our love, our affections, our unity, and it enables us to reconcile when we sin against one another. Let this give you hope. Let this give you hope and courage in the midst of those uncomfortable conversations and awkward moments. Remember who you are, children of God, and let these truths warm your affections for God and for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. We thank you, O oh Lord, that your gospel comforts us in so many ways. Lord, we pray that your people would submit themselves to this gospel, that they would marvel at your grace, that they would act upon it, and that your spirit would work evidences of grace in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would not sweep away sin, personal sin under the carpet, but in humility, trusting upon you that we would act in faith, that we would love one another, that we would reconcile and be affectionate to one another. And Lord, we know that we cannot do this without your Spirit. And so, Lord, come and fill us. Grant us the grace to love one another. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.